Colossians 3. Welcome to those online who are checking us out through their screens, wherever that is. I can remember watching when we were out of town. I was, uh, we were out of town on a Sunday. I remember driving back from Atlanta, watching our Grace Christian Fellowship service through our phone on the dash as we were driving up I-26. It was quite different than being here. But um, it was also good to be here in that way. I just, I just, I'm grateful for the technology that makes it possible for us to do that. And when you have sick ones at home and you've got to stay home, this gives you that option. You don't, you don't miss all of it. You miss some of it. Can't give a hug unless it's someone that's in your family or whoever's with you. But I'm just grateful we can do that. I don't know how old I was, 9, 10, 11 years old. I was in, it was Little League Baseball. And I had a coach. He was actually an assistant coach. And he gave me a nickname. Now, you need to understand, I was not cool at any stage in school, okay? Never was I to get a good nickname. If I ever got a nickname, it was usually not meant to be a, a, a compliment. But I got one from him. And he never explained it. He just started calling me Angel. Now, I was a little embarrassed at first because a boy being called Angel on the baseball field, that's not quite what you hope for. But I, the, the other guys didn't rag me about it. And so I was kind of curious, and, and I, I figured out later it was code. It was his way of saying, I know your last name's Gabriel, Angel Gabriel, Christmas story. And I'm like, that's kind of cool that he kind of put that together. So it's like we're both like insiders. We like knew. And so that was pretty cool. And, and that coach, if he didn't do anything else for me that season, he made my season because he gave me a nickname. He made me feel like I mattered to the team, to him. And coaches do that. Now, not all coaches do that well, but coaches impact us. That's what they're supposed to do. They train us to do something. Usually it's a sport. It can be, uh, it can be you know, we call them different things, like dance instructors for a dance team, but they're essentially a coach. And we have all kinds of coaches in life. And a coach does a couple of things. They train us to do something. Okay, so we, you know, teach, rebuke, correct, train they, they also inspire us. They call us to greatness, call us to do something great. And so I appreciate coaches. And, and the Apostle Paul is going to take a turn here from chapter 2 to chapter 3. He's going to turn from being someone who's a warning sign. Remember last week we looked at the four warnings he gave us, warnings about the false teachings and philosophies and all that junk that, that was coming at the people in the church at Colossae. He's going to turn now and he's going to make it more positive and he's going to start coaching the team, if you will. Start coaching Christians. Here's how to live in light of what I've written about in chapters 1 and 2. He is going to basically answer the question, which is the title for today, is how do we, take, how do we keep from making good things God things? How do we keep from making good things God things? And what I mean by that is there are a lot of things in our lives that are good that we can take further than was ever intended by God and make them in and of themselves gods. Make them so important in our lives that they actually control us and cause us to behave in ways we wouldn't behave otherwise if we didn't, if we didn't think of that thing as a God. Now, we would never say we think of things as a God, but it's kind of that old saying, you want to own your things, you don't want your things to own you. Okay? A small example might be you get a brand new car, and I don't know what that's like, never have done that, but imagine you got a brand new car and you go to park at Walmart. Where are you parking? 
You're changing your behavior from what you used to do, which was find the closest slot you could find because your old jalopy, right, is fine. I can park wherever I want. I don't care if someone bangs the doors. But my brand new car, I'm not parking in the back of Walmart. I'm going to the bank behind Walmart and parking there. And then I'll spend half the day hiking to Walmart because I don't want someone to bang my doors. And of course it's going to happen, right? I mean, you're still going to have somebody that's going to park right next to you. Anyway, not that it's happened to me. I don't, I don't know what that's like. But I know people who know what that's like. And, the, and what happened there was that that thing was so important to you that you changed your behavior. You changed the way that you're living. And that's what we mean when we talk about making something like a God. It, means, it doesn't mean that you bow down to it, but it does mean that you surrender part of your life to it. You change the way that you behave or think or talk because of it. And we do that with things. It's called materialism, right? We do that with our jobs, achievements and statuses. It's narcissism. We do that with pleasure-seeking hedonism. Words we don't necessarily use a lot, but they're just describing how we behave when we get a little out of control on use things and, and let things use us. Okay? Is it me or is it sounding hot? The mic kind of hot. Okay. Y'all, are y'all okay? It's not too... too okay. Good. Thanks. It just sounds different today. So, um, so that's what I want to do. The bottom line for today is this. How do we deal with that? How do we keep from making good things God things? And the way we do that, as Paul spells out very specifically, he says, focus on things above. Focus your heart and your mind on things that, that last beyond this life. Live in light of eternity is another way we've said it over the years. And he's going to spell that out in just four verses. So we're going to look at just the first four verses here today. Verse four, verses four. Let me read through it, and then we'll, we'll um, go through and, and tear it apart. Paul writes, now remember who he's writing to. He's writing, a, this is a letter. The book of Colossians is actually a letter. It's a letter that he wrote personally to the Christians in the church. And there was only one church per city back then. The church in the city of Colossae. Okay, now when I say there was only one church in the city of Colossae, I mean one network of churches. There wasn't like one big church building. They didn't have church buildings for the first 300 years. They met in homes. And so what it meant was there was a network of churches that were united under the same elders. They would have been united and in step with each other, assuming they were healthy. And the city of Colossae was in modern-day Turkey. And then he told them later in the letter, and, you know, pass this letter on to Laodicea, and then get their letter I wrote them, and you can read that one. Basically, Paul intended these letters to be circular letters, meaning use it and then pass it on. Make a copy if you want, but use it, read it, and then pass it on to the next church. Laodicea, Hierapolis, all those churches in the region. So this is what Paul writes to this particular church because Epaphras, their pastor, traveled from what is today Turkey all the way to what is still Rome where Paul was in prison and he said, Paul, my church is, is being attacked from the inside and from the outside from all these weird philosophies and false religious beliefs and they're, they're derailing our people and enslaving our people to false teachings. They're not living free in Christ. What do I do? And Paul says, I'll write a letter to him and, and help you out. So he writes him a letter and this is the letter and we get this. So this is why we study it because these, these, thing, these letters and books of the Bible that made the scriptures had to meet all these qualifications for the church fathers to put them in. And one of the things is they believe that God was speaking through them. And so we're going to read it as if that's the case. So this is what it says. Paul writes, since then you have been raised with Christ. That means resurrected. Set your, but 
Obviously, they haven't been physically resurrected, so he's talking about spiritual resurrection and anticipating the actual resurrection that will occur. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earth. For you died, obviously not literally yet, but they died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So basically, he's doing a couple things here. First thing he's doing is he's saying, here's what you need to do. In light of all the things I've been teaching, chapters 1, chapters 2, and even the things that will follow, but especially the things I've been saying for the last two chapters, which we've been preaching for through for several weeks, in light of that, here's how you avoid making good things in life God things. Taking something that is good and putting way too much into it and, and making it what determines how you live. Focus on the things of heaven. Think about things above. Now, when we talk about the heart, set your heart on things above, what are we talking about? The Bible, when the New Testament is talking about the heart, it's talking about the seat of our affections, the seat of our feelings, the seat, of the seat of the things that, when I say affection, it's not just feelings, it's what do I really have a passion for? It also is the seat of our will, what I decide to do and what I decide not to do. And it's also, it ties into what I think. Now he does say later, right, just right after this, set your mind on things above. And, you know, it's just, he's just, I think, just driving home the point, what you think about matters. What you think about when you have the freedom to think about whatever you want, what that is, that matters. Okay, think about, think about love God and love people, right? If we take that over the door and we take that and remember, what scripture does that come from? Well, the first part, love God, comes from love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? And the second part, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so Paul, he, you know, he remembers the words of Jesus. He's going to refer to them whenever he can because that's what, who it's about. It's about Jesus Christ. And he's going to make sure that that's what it's about and that they understand that's the connection. So he says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Now, what does he mean to have been raised with Christ when you're still sitting there? It, it kind of doesn't make sense. He's saying, if, when, remember when, when we do baptism. Okay, so if you've never seen us do baptism here before, what we do is, whether it's at the beach, in a hot tub, or in our portable unit that we drag in here when we do that, what we do is we set somebody in a tub of water, and then I or somebody else will say, before we, do, before we lower them into the water and raise them up, we say, you know, I get to call you my brother or sister in Christ. This is awesome. We, because you've trusted the Lord Jesus, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Or brothers in Christ, or however it is. And so then I say, buried together with Christ, and I lower them into the water, and then I raise them back up, saying, raised to walk a new life with him. And we say, this is a symbolic act of something that has really happened in this person's life. And they are declaring that to the world. They are going public, no matter the consequences, and they're saying, I surrender my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just my Savior, he's my Lord. And I'm going to live like he's my Savior out of gratitude, and Lord, he's my Master. That's what you, we do with a God. Okay? So you better make sure you choose a good God to surrender to, because if he's not good, then you're surrendering to a tyrant. Right? And God is no tyrant. The God of the Bible is no tyrant. But you have to decide, right? Do I believe that? Because it's real easy for me to sit here and say that, and you can go, okay, well, that's, that's fine for you. The question is, what's real? What's true? And then what do I do with that truth? 
And so Paul is talking to Christians. This letter is written to Christians. So everything he's saying, he's writing to people who have already professed Christ. They've already been baptized in, in, in front of people publicly as a Christian. Now he knows what you and I know. Just because someone says they're Christian, right, doesn't mean they're walking it. Even if they are really a Christian, we, we don't always walk fully and faithfully with him. And then there's sometimes when we think we're a Christian. I, as an 18-year-old, went to a Christian concert with my Christian friends from the Christian organization at Clemson on campus, thinking I was a Christian, until I heard the gospel for the first time. And then I finally became a Christian. And boy, was I confused. Because I'd grown up in the church, going to church, doing all the things. I was an official member of the you-know-what church. And yet, I didn't know the Lord. Why? Because you don't go to heaven on your parents' faith. You choose, decide, receive, believe on your own. It's your call. No one can make you. And once you do it genuinely, no one can take it from you. It's a spiritual transaction between you and your creator. And Paul is talking to those kinds of people. And he's saying, since then you have been raised with Christ. Meaning... You have been spiritually raised from death because you have died to self and you've been raised to walk. And he's going to unpack this here in verses 3 and 4. But he just kind of alludes to it really quickly because he's already mentioned it. Since you've been raised with Christ, spiritually, you can look forward to the day when you're going to literally be raised. Now, this is why I'm not afraid to die. Okay? I might be afraid of the process of being crushed in a car or something like that. I'm not saying that doesn't bother me. But I'm okay falling asleep and never waking up. I'm not afraid to die because... I know that to die here is to be home there. It's not to really die. My body dies, fine. It's not any good anyway. But I'm going to get a good one, and I'm going to live and inhabit that one one day forever. Okay? So I don't have to be afraid of death. And, and at some point, and you may not be there yet, in your Christian faith, you'll get to the place where you walk more and more comfortable believing that that's really true for you. Okay? He's saying, since you have been raised with Christ, since you know that's coming for you, Okay? But you're living in a world and in a time where you have all these things coming at you, tempting you to do things that you don't really want to do, tempting you to take good things in your life and making them gods. Let me give you a couple of ways you can avoid doing that, falling into that trap, drinking that poison, so to speak, the poison of making good things God things. So what I want to give you is a few antidotes. Now, an antidote is drinking something. If you drink poison and you get the antidote to the poison, it means it neutralizes the harmful effects of the poison, right? An antidote to a snake bite would be the right... I think that's how it works. Anyway, that's how I think it works, so we just work with me here, okay? So I'm going to give you some spiritual antidotes to this, these poisons of materialism, narcissism, hedonism, and whatever ism you can think of. This is, this, the remedy is the same. It's to set your heart on things above. It's to set your mind on things above. To do it intentionally, continuously, as if you are obeying the Lord because he knows what's good and he's commanding you to do what's good because he knows what's best for you and me. He wants the best for you because if you're in a good place, then you're better able to help the next person get to a good place. Okay? So let's, let's keep going. Let's break it down. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, your affections, your will, your thinking on things above, 
where Christ is. Okay, so now he's being more specific. Okay, because remember, there are other people talking about spiritual encounters and all of these things. They were taking some uh, Old Testament um, legalism, and they were taking some Eastern mysticism, and they were taking some Platonic philosophy, and they were mixing all this up and making a gobbledygook mess of religion. It was religiosity to the extreme. And he's saying, okay, let's just talk about what I mean when I say things above. I mean where Christ is. Well, Christ, remember, who is he? Okay. So there's one God, not three. But we, we realize that God has revealed himself in three ways. It, and, and he's revealed himself in infinite number of ways, but three profound ways in Scripture. He reveals himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Okay? We don't call him three gods, even though people accuse us of saying, yeah, you say you've got one God, but you've got three. I'm not sure why it matters so much, but it matters theologically that we have one God. We are a monotheistic religion. Okay? Same with um, Islam, same with Judaism. It's monotheistic. Most other religions are polytheistic, meaning they have multiple gods. So-called, little g. Okay? So where Christ is, when we talk about things above, we're talking about Christ. Who is Christ? He is the second person of the Trinity, so Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who created us, who we rebelled against, starting with Adam and Eve, and we do it because they did it, who died for us so that we could be reconciled to the one we rebelled, and who was raised to life, proving that he defeated sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself. He defeated it all. And so I don't know about you, but I went on his team. Okay? That's, where, that's the team I want to play on. That's who I want to be in a dark alley with. Okay? Because he won. It's past tense. It's done. And that's why I can live today as if I've won, because I'm believing in what he did. Okay? But we see that Scripture talks about our salvation in three dimensions. Talks about it in the past, talks about it in the present, talks about it in the future. And that's because we've been saved, are being saved, and will be saved, completed in our salvation one day. And it's kind of confusing, right? And yet, when you, when you start to think about it, you realize, oh, it's just that comprehensive. It's just amazing. So he's going to do that when he talks about why we want to set our eyes our, our, our hearts and our minds on things above. He's going to give us those reasons. He's going to say there's a reason back there, there's a reason right here, and there's a reason in the future. And I'm going to give you all three of those reasons in verses 3 and 4. But I do want to point this out. Where Christ is seated is at the right hand of God. Okay, so if God's on the throne, we saw this when we looked at Revelation. Remember what's standing right next to the throne. In imagery, we have a lamb who's been slain but is alive. What would that be? It would be signifying Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who was slain for the sins of the world, and yet he's alive because he was resurrected. That's the imagery we see in Revelation. And God the Father's there. So he's at the right hand of God the Father. Now, old translations, some translations used to say he, he used to sit on the right hand of God, which is why everybody thought God was left-handed for a couple hundred years. So, because if Jesus is sitting on it, yeah. But that's not true. You know, they changed. They fixed that, I guess you could say in the translation. He said, at the right hand. Now, why a right hand? Why not the left hand? Is God playing favorites? I think it's just because that's, a signif that's where the you ever, you know, right hand man, you ever heard of that? You know, this is where God goes to when he wants something to happen. He's delegated authority. He's made him the king. He's, he, you know, he, he's all these things and more. Jesus is. And so, um, when we, when, so Paul's just making it clear. When you think about and set your heart on things above, there's only one place I'm really talking about. I'm talking about on Jesus. Okay, let's just make that real clear. The risen Jesus. The Jesus who defeated sin and death, shame and guilt, hell itself. Okay? That Jesus. 
So, how do we help ourselves go from not making good things, God things? We set our hearts and our minds on things above. Why should we do that? Why does that work? Verses 3 and 4. Reason number one, for you died. I'm thinking, I'm sitting there listening to Paul read this letter to me, and, and, and this letter says, you died. And I'm like, um, am I in heaven? And no, you're not dead yet, but yes, you did die. And this is back to when we trust Christ, okay? When a Christian is somebody who has trusted Christ, they are saying, I've surrendered to Christ. In so many words, you're saying, I surrender all. I mean, we even sing the song. I don't think we believe it, but we sing it like we believe it because we're like, Lord, help me believe what I don't believe because I know I should believe it. That's why we sing it. Well, yeah. Okay, but I surrender all is a way of saying, I believe I should let you be in control of my life because I made a mess of it. I'm not very good at this me being on the throne of my heart thing. And so I'm going to surrender that spot. I'm going to consciously choose by grace through faith to step up out of that seat that is yours and let you sit on that throne in my heart because I know that's who needs to run my life. Because if you created me, you know how I work. If you sustain me, you know how to keep me going emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. So why wouldn't I turn my life over to you? Why wouldn't I walk surrendered to you? What is that? That's another way of saying I died. I died. Okay? Remember back to our baptism. Buried together with Christ. What does that mean? I was crucified with Christ. I died to the sins of the world. Now, Christ didn't die to the, to the sins. He never committed any sins. He died for the sins of the world. But we mirror that because we've sinned. I don't know about you, but I know I've sinned. And I'm pretty sure you know you have too. Okay? The, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, you know, if you, have a, if you don't believe you've sinned, then, you know, it's time you woke up. Okay? Get a little EQ in you. All right? So there's this idea. You died. That's past. And then it says this. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, we're going to show a video clip here in just a second. That's your cue. Um, that is going to vividly illustrate what it looks like for us to have Christ in us, us to be in Christ, and us in Christ to be in God at the same time. Sounds really confusing. Watch this, and I think this will help. I want you to picture this first Tupperware container as you. I'm going to do a little drawing here of you. Okay, you ready? Here's you. Be prepared. All right. Well done, huh? All right. So this is you. Now, based on what we just saw in what we just read, who is in you? Jesus. Christ is in you. So let's take this piece of Tupperware and let's write on it Christ. All right, so Christ is in, where's the top? There we go. Christ is in you. So now we're beginning to get a picture of your life. But we just talked about how not only is Christ in you, but, and you look back up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, so many places in the Bible it talks about how you are in who? You are in Christ. So let's do this. Let's call this next. On Christ as well, and put a top on it. So, now we're getting a clearer picture of who you are. You have Christ in you, you are in Christ, but then let me show you one other verse, 
Colossians chapter three, verse three, very similar to Galatians chapter two, verse 20, talks about how you died as a Christian and your life is now hidden with Christ. Anybody know what it says next? In God. Is it on the screen? Oh, you just knew it. Well done. All right, so, sorry, didn't mean to doubt you. Sorry, that was great. All right, so your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, we got one more. Let's bring out the big tub for God. All right, and let's put Christ in you, you in Christ, Christ in God. Okay, now we've got a little more complete picture of your life. Now, I want you to think about what comes at you in this world. I want you to think about the adversary who wants to come at you in this world. In order for the adversary to get to you, let's just think about this for a moment. He first will encounter God the Father, which he does not have a good track record with. (laughs) But let's just assume for a second, he makes it past God the Father, then he has to deal with Jesus Christ himself, which last time that happened, he walked away shamed and defeated. Now he thought he won for a couple of days, but then he figured out that he was defeated. He had his head crushed by the snake crusher and sin and death and Satan were defeated. So he's going to have to then deal with Christ. And then if he's able to get past Christ round one, then he gets to you. But who is still in you? Round two of Jesus Christ himself inside of you. So I'm thinking that you're pretty secure. In fact, I would take it a step further just to think practically. Like, no matter what level of cancer or what diagnosis comes your way, no matter what people in this world may do or try to do to you. No matter what happens in your job, no matter what happens in your circumstances, no matter what this world throws at you, I want you to see a picture and be reminded that you are in Christ. Christ is in you, in God. You are absolutely secure. For those who are in, when you are in Jesus, nothing can stand against you. Nothing. Not even death itself. Amen. Amen. All right, so you see it? Verse 3. For you died. That's surrender. And your life is now currently hidden with, God, with Christ in God. Okay. And, that, and he said it, he said it makes this really, you, you feel secure when you start to believe that and you realize that that's true. You also realize that you are concealed, there's a sense in which you are concealed, um, and then there's, this, uh, then there's this idea of identi- identity, you're identifying with Christ. Remember last week? Last week we used a piece of paper, and uh, we, in, with that piece of paper we said... Okay, I wanted you to write, you could do this now if you have a Bible physically with you. If you want to take a piece of paper or a card or something and just write your name on a piece of paper. And then you stick that piece of paper in your physical Bible. Okay, and if you let the Bible represent Christ, 
Okay, the Word of God, Jesus is, um, John 1, 1 through 18, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we call Jesus the Word, and now I'm in the Word, so I'm in Christ. It's another way of saying, wherever Christ goes, so do I. And wherever I go, right, he's with me. And so I can feel secure. I'm identifying with him. I'm not ashamed of him. I'm identifying. I'm not afraid to be called a Christ follower, a Christian, a believer in Christ. I'm not afraid, and I'm not ashamed of that. Why? Because I know that the things of this world are going to just try to pull me away from what's true. And he's going to try to pull me towards what is true and good and pleasing in the sight of, of God. And, and that's going to keep me from letting the good things in this life become gods in my life. It's going to be the antidote to things like materialism and narcissism and hedonism. So he, he, so he says, past, you've died, present, you're hidden, and then future, okay, with Christ and God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, because he, he gives you life, he sustains you in life, he's your creator, right? He has control how long you live, whether you live, he created you on purpose for a purpose, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Now that, that now we're starting to talk about the future. And this is telling us something that's implied, but we need to think about. And some of you may not have ever heard this before. But Jesus not only came, which we celebrate at Christmas, the first coming, the first advent. Jesus says, I'm coming again. I'm coming soon. And that's the second coming of Christ, the, the second advent. I don't think we'll be celebrating Christmas after that. I think we'll be celebrating uh, eternity with, Kent, with him. So he says, when he appears again, then we'll appear with him where? In glory. Where's that? No, it's not Branson, Missouri. I don't know. What, what happens there is a little strange sometimes. Um, but it's glory is just another name for the presence of God. Well, where is God right now? Where is he in full glory? He's in the heavenly realm. He is in that place above. Set your hearts and minds on things above, where Jesus is, at the right hand of God. When Jesus appears, he then takes his people and appears there. Okay? We end up there with him. He comes and appears in the here and now, and he takes us to the hereafter. Okay? Now, I get it. If you're hearing this for the first time, this is a little strange. Okay? Okay, it's a lot strange. But that doesn't mean it's not true, first of all. And second of all, we have 2,000 years of folks who've been looking at this from every angle you can think about. Scientists, archaeologists, philosophers, um, uh, you know, everybody. Everybody's looking at this theologically, scientifically, um, logically, historically, personal experientially. We're, we're all looking at this. And, and here we are 2,000 years later, and a third of the planet says they're following Christ. Okay? That's pretty influential when you consider it started with Jesus and 120 people in the upper room. Started with a, what looked like a failure. He died. Our Savior died on the cross. We're done. We're toast. Put a fork in him. We're done. And yet, three days later, he's alive. He's been raised from the dead, never to die again. And he says, all who trust and follow me will go the same road. That's why it's called good news. When you understand that the alternative is bad news, the alternative is eternal separation from God, that means it's eternal separation from everything that is good, then all of a sudden the things in my life that, that compete for my affections and my desires and my attention, those things start to fade 
and I start to rightly prioritize the things in my life. I start to rightly order the things that really matter in my life around him. But if I don't have him at the center, then I'm constantly looking for somebody to fill that vacuum. I'm looking for stuff. The more stuff makes me feel more secure. If I have more money in the bank than I have more retirement, then I feel better about retirement. Well, if your security is in your retirement, you're going to be disappointed, okay? Remember who's handling the money, okay? People, (laughs) okay? Um, If you're trusting in the stock market, then you've got more faith than I do because I don't have any confidence in that. If your confidence is in our economy, then you've got more faith than I do because I don't have any confidence in our economy. And and on and on and on. We could go, right? Okay, so if you're trusting in those things to fill that centerpiece of your life, then you're going to be disappointed. Because even if you get what you think you want that will make you happy, it quickly starts to fade, right? If you, again, I haven't done this, but if you've ever bought a new car, you know what I'm talking about. Three months later, you're like, gosh, this just doesn't seem new anymore. A year later, you're not even washing it. Whereas when you first got it, you were washing it every week. Vacuuming, keeping it looking brand new. And now it's, you know, well, it's, I've had it for a year. It's just a car. I'm still paying for it in some cases, right? And so those things don't satisfy like we think they will, okay? Same is true for relationships, okay? If we put our marriage at the center and we try to make it all about our marriage, we're going to be disappointed. Why? Because you're married to a person. Hello? And the women went, hey, man, sometimes he's a person, Right? Because we're people and we're not always lovable and likable and, yeah, all of that. And if you're trying to build your life on that, you're going to be disappointed. It's not going to satisfy. And you're putting him or her in the place of God. And they make lousy gods. Just ask my wife. Right? Or if you're trying to put your career there, if I could just succeed and climb the ladder and get to the right spot, we'll be happy And then you realize that even if you get there, first of all, you have to be able to sleep at night after what you had to do to get there. And then you get there and then you realize it it just takes one vote of the board of directors or it just takes one stock market crash or you being in the wrong place at the wrong time and that just crashes and you lose everything. Or if you put your pleasures, the things that you love more than anything to do that just bring you pleasure, and you put them there at the center, and you make them way more than they were ever intended to be, then you take something that is good, that God gave us to use, that is good, and you make it a God, and you're going to find that it will not satisfy. And it oftentimes will lead to dysfunction, and depression, and anxiety, and hopelessness, and despair. Okay? What are the antidotes to those things? Set your hearts and minds on things above. Where do you spend your time? What do you spend your time doing when you have free time? (laughs) I know, you're laughing. I have no free time. You have discretionary time. When you're not sleeping, when you're not working or at school, then there's that last eight hours or for some of you eight minutes, okay? And what do you do with that besides collapse into the lounge chair? You know, what do you do with that? When you have a choice and you have it's just you and, and you, what are you doing with that time? What are you doing with the discretionary money you have? <laughs> Another good joke, Darren. There's no money that's extra. But let's just, you know, a little bit extra. What am I going to do with that? Okay? What am I doing with the relationships that I have in my life? The relationships that are closest to me, the ones that matter most, the ones that I would do anything for. What am I doing in those lives, in those relationships? How am I living those out? 
All of those things are impacted by what you do with Jesus. You want your marriage to be better? If you don't involve and revolve around Jesus, you're always going to, you're going to hit a wall. Because those of us who do do it around Jesus, we still struggle, okay? I'm not telling you it's all going to be roses when you do that. I'm telling you what happens is God has given you what you need to get through it. Struggling at work with a boss? Christ has to be at the center of your career. Christ has to be the center at how am I going to earn a living? How am I going to survive? How am I going to pay for food? I mean, it doesn't matter what extreme you're at. It, at the end of the day, it still matters. Who's at the center of all that I believe and think and live? And, and when you start thinking about I mean, just think about it. I mean, some of us, we were at a funeral this past week. Okay? Think about that. When you, this is why it's important that you go to a funeral, whether it's your family or not. Because in that moment, for those few minutes that you break away from everything else that's important and you stop, basically you push pause on life and you show up for this funeral, it, it's God's way of saying, don't forget about me. Don't forget that this isn't all there is. Because there's nothing more empty than being at a funeral where they didn't believe in God. It's tragic and it's depressing and it's sobering. If you don't have that settled, if you haven't figured that out, then it's also terrifying. So it's good to go to funerals. One, it encourages and supports those that are, that are still struggling with the loss. But it's good for us too. So how do we resist this temptation to make good things God things? Set your hearts and minds on things above. Remember, you died to those things. You died so that those things wouldn't enslave you. You're hidden with Christ. Christ in you, you in Christ hope of glory, all in God, today, walking in that, if you are, again, mindset, and then your future, future so bright, you got to wear shades because you're going to glory, okay? Past, present, and future. Our salvation is a past event, his, rooted in history, a historical figure named Jesus of Nazareth, who was also Jesus the Messiah, died for the sins of the world so that we might live for him who is hidden in our hearts in such a way that he can empower us to do the things we would think we could never truly do and even want to do and even do consistently for the right reasons. And then he reminds us, oh, and the best is yet to come. This is not all there is. Don't be drugged down into depression and despair when you know what waits, okay? Don't let the, the circumstances in which you find yourself right now cause you to think it can't get any better. It can get better, and it can get worse. And a lot of that hinges on where you put Christ. So, how do I do that? If, if you've never trusted Christ, how do I do that? What does that mean? Okay, if I, where's the stool? Where's my stool? Somebody took my stool. I'll use this one. I'm going to use this one, actually, because I'm going to carry it over here. Okay, how do I trust that stool to hold me up? Class participation time. How do I trust that stool to hold me up? I got to sit on it. Okay? But I believe it can sit on it, I, that I can sit on it and it won't fall. Isn't that enough? I trust, I, I believe, I believe this stool can hold me up. Is that enough? No. Because it's not holding me up, is it? To trust this to hold me up means that I have to prove that I believe by actually putting the full weight on there. And I realize I'm risking because these stools are a little, you know, 
Okay, but I'm going to do it. This isn't God, so I can't, I'm not quite sure I can count on the stool, but I can count on God much more. But if I trust, well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm ready for that yet. If I got to believe, I got to really believe that stool is going to hold me up because otherwise I'm just kind of saying it, right? And you know people who say, yeah, well, I believe in God. I believe, you know, I believe God will take care of me in the end. Why? Why would God take care of you in the end? We rebelled, remember? Humanity, the traitor race. Why would we get on? No, he's like, no, you're just talking. It just depends on who's in the room. If somebody can talk you into believing that God's real, then someone can talk you out of it. No, no, I need you to believe with everything. Surrender, die. Remember, die is in the language of salvation. It's me saying, I die to me being in control, and I surrender. That means put the full weight of everything I believe on somebody else. In this case, Jesus Christ. And so, even though I risk the stool collapsing under my weight, I get, and I put the full weight on there. See, it's kind of wobbly. But God is not. Okay? So that's the question. So how do I trust God? You sit on him. <laughs> no disrespect intended. You put your full weight into who he says he is. And who does he say he is? He says, I am the Lord God Almighty who created you and leads you out of slavery, leads you out of slave, enslavement to sin and self, guilt and shame, hell itself. I lead you out of that. And not only am I going to save you past, I'm going to continue to save you and sanctify you present. Because you're going to walk and, I, and you're hidden in me as I'm in you and we're in God. Hidden together, concealed and secure, and identifying with you. Knowing that the best is yet to come and we're all heading that way as we seek to follow Jesus together and lead others to do the same. You see, here's what I know. You're never going to lead anyone to Christ when your life is upside down. Not intentionally. God can use you, and he will. And, and I mean that in the best sense of the word. But what he really wants is for you and I to intentionally order our lives around Jesus to such a degree that not only it helps us get our lives and our acts together, at least as a pattern, they're not going to be perfect, but then I have enough stability under me that I can kind of go to my neighbor and go, hey, follow me as I follow him. I'm not going to get it right all the time. That's okay. Follow me as I follow him. Because God doesn't require perfection because there would be nobody leading people to Christ if that was the case. So how do you do that? How do you start? And I say you just tell God you want to do that. God, I want to trust you. I want to turn my life over to you. I want to die to my agenda. I want to die to my plans. I want to die to my dreams. And I want to surrender them all to you because I believe that you're so good that what you have for me is better than anything I could cook up in my own mind and imagination. You can help me better my family, my career, my friends, my future, my dreams, my desires, my passions, my, my craving for attention, my craving for adoration, my craving for um, pleasures. You, you can supersede all of that and give me way better than I ever could dream up on my own if Christ is at the center, if I set my heart and mind on things above. And so this is when we say pray, that's when I do it. I, that's, that's basically your... A prayer to God for salvation is basically you saying, okay, God, I'm going to try to say what I already have decided to do, which is I'm going to put all my weight on you. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer that does just that. Now, if you've already trusted Christ and you're con convinced you've already trusted Christ, 
then one, you are thanking God while I'm praying, leading those in prayer that haven't done that yet. But some of you aren't sure. If you are honest, you have your times where you're like, I just don't know. Because you know deep down that your life doesn't, you don't have the pattern of that happening in your life. Some people are sitting here and they know, and they know, I don't, I don't know the Lord and I, I, know, I know I need him. I, I know that, whether they trust him today or not, they know. But some of you have been kind of wearing the mask, playing, wearing, got the costume on, you got the part down. You can fake it till you make it, okay? And you've been in and out of church long enough to where you know the secret handshake and you know where the snakes are hidden. I'm just kidding, there are no snakes. And you know how to play the game of church. And so you can kind of fake yourself out, kind of convince yourself, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm in there, I'm religious. But we're talking about something that's, that goes deeper than just what you see on the outside. We're talking about something that reorients how you decide what you're going to do with your life, what you're going to acquire. What does it look like to have the antidote of materialism? I think it's simple living. You just live with less by choice. What does it look like to battle narcissism? What's the antidote to narcissism? Instead of focusing on yourself, it's focusing on others. Others over self. Others first. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does it look like to the antidote to hedonism where we're seeking pleasure at every turn? It's like, it's deny self. That's what fasting is for. Okay? I need to learn to fast sweet tea. I mean, in the South, right? Sweet tea. You can pull into any restaurant and get sweet tea. Now, I was in torture in South Florida because in South Florida, the only place you could get sweet tea, unless you bought it out of a vending machine, is Shoney's. You could find waitresses from Tennessee, uh, sweet apple pie, and a sweet tea. Now, it was the only place in South Florida you could find sweet tea. And I don't know if it's changed since I've been there, but it was pretty pathetic. And I lived down for years, five years, in the desert of sweet tea. But here's the thing. If you tell me, if you ask me, Darren, can you give up sweet tea for a day? I would say, yes, I can do that. But if you ask me to do that, I'll push back. Because that combination of tea and sugar and caffeine, hmm. and I would say, it really doesn't matter. It's just sugar and caffeine. It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. And if they said, well, what if it was cocaine? And oh, by the way, cocaine is addictive. And so you see, things can grab us, and they can be as strong as heroin and as weak as caffeine. And they're still grabbing us. They still have us enslaved. All right? The antidote to these things is to set your mind and heart on things above. Okay? And yes, there may be some things I need to... If Christ is at the center, it means I might need to pick a day of the week and not drink sweet tea that day. And you might go, come on, Darren, you can do better than that. Come on, that's pretty low bar. You don't understand. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> it's sad. And it's true. When he says you die, he means die to all. Okay? If I can't give up caffeine and sweet tea, then do I, is Jesus Lord of that area of my life? No. And if I can't do that, then how in the world am I going to be the husband my wife needs me to be? And you have your, your list of issues too. Okay? So you see, we're all in this together. Okay? We all need Jesus to be at the center of our lives, and we need to set our hearts and minds on things above so that we don't get sucked into this, this uh, poison, making good things God's. So I'm going to lead us to prayer, and if you'll just pray with me.
Lord God, uh, um, we, we come to you believing that you're the only hope we have to overcome the, the challenges in our lives. In some cases, Lord, we need you to remove the circumstance. We need you to heal the body, the mind, the heart, whatever it is, there's just healing that is needed. We ask for that. Lord, in some cases, there are patterns, uh, destructive patterns that are in our lives. Maybe we're um, anger issues. Maybe it's some kind of addiction. Lord, we need you to, re- to, to remove those temptations. But Lord, you also need, we need you to give us the self-control and discipline to say no when we have a choice to the things we need to say no to. And to say yes to the things we need to say yes to. And we need to get to the place where we believe that you actually care about us enough to help us with the issues in our lives. And, and there's no issue too small that, for you to care about. And there's no issue too big in our lives that you can't handle. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe those things. Well, I know you give us the faith to believe those things. By grace through faith, you give us that grace and that faith. But we have a choice to exercise the faith, to actually live it, to reorient our lives around Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, our Creator and our Redeemer. You are worthy of our praise. Lord, I pray that you would open hearts and minds to say yes to Jesus, to say, I surrender all to Jesus. turn from our sinful, selfish ways and turn to you. God, help us do that right now. Whether it's the first time we've ever done it or the thousandth time we've done it this week. May we humble ourselves and turn back to our good God and ask you to change our life from the inside out. Christ in us, the hope of glory. In his name we pray. Amen.